Hey, and welcome to the CCWC podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. So this morning we return to this last uh, of uh, portion, uh, there's three weeks left, um, second portion I should say, of this series, All in the Family. And as we've walked through the first four weeks before we, we took a break for the 90th anniversary celebration, there was this recognition of the different relationships um, that, that possibly that you and I have been part of, but at the same time, the different relationships that we can afford, that we can, we can gather, that we can gain information from and, and as a result of so that we might be able to navigate through our own relationships and through our relationships with our family and then also with the family of God. This week we're talking about, and if you saw it on the sign, perhaps you saw it uh, within the bulletin, we're talking about the in-laws and outlaws in our lives. Anybody in here have in-laws? Real quick, just want to, okay, so I'm speaking to everyone, but you specifically can relate to some of these. Anybody have outlaws? You want to, I'm the only one on video, so you're okay to admit it, right? Right now is when I would typically give the, uh, you know, the assumed or the obligatory mother-in-law joke. However, I don't have one that applies. I'm fortunate that that's the case. So what I thought I would do is give a son-in-law joke on myself. And so uh, my daughter and I put together a video, and I'm going to play that for you right now. Live from Christ Community Wesleyan Church in Athens County, Ohio. Boy that Abraham had faith. His son nearly found his grave. God sent a ram and let Isaac escape. Those, Those were, were the, the days. days. Hosea chose not to play it safe. He chased his wife to Expressed his love though things weren't great. Those were the days. Abel slipped my brother Cain. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that they'd been more like Ruth and Naomi in the end. Paul and Barney were the best of friends. Spread the gospel through thick and thin. Made possible by devotion of Joseph and the Virgin. <laughs> Those were the days. That was pretty cringy. I'm sorry. Uh, that was cringy. So uh, <laughs> let me just say, if you are over 50, that might have been uh, a way of ruining that song for you forever. <laughs> if you're under 50, get on YouTube and look up All in the Family theme song. You'll find out what that's all about. Um, I had been promising to a few people that we were going to put that together, and it took me this long to get my daughter to agree. So she's a good Edith, I think. So we'll see how it goes. As we move into this series, I want to just remind us of the reality that even if the, the relationships that we discuss this week in-laws, even if those don't apply to you, have your heart and mind open to reflect upon the fact that God might be saying something specific simply about the heart of relationships, the, uh, the position, the posture of relationships, and how God might want to engage you in a new way. 
We're going to look specifically at the the relationship of Naomi and Ruth today, and we're going to uh, primarily focus on the book of Ruth chapter 1. If you have your Bible, you can turn there or you can uh, open that up on your smart device as well if you're using uh, a Bible app. I want to give just a a little bit of background information. This specific book highlights three characters, uh, Ruth, Naomi, and uh, a third Boaz, which we're not going to talk about as much today. And it comes to us in a time where the, uh, the, the, the culture and the climate of the time is very dark. They're, they're, these are difficult times. These are times where sin and hostility and, and violence are running rapid among those who are involved within the context of this historical account. And it is a, a difficult time to live as one who loves God. The story, as it were, as the author sees fit, zooms in specifically on this one Israelite family and the the plight that they are dealing with, the plight they are walking through, and the fact that they are in a place and a time of famine. And so because of the famine they have, they have no food, they move to a place uh, called Moab where they can secure a new life, where they can secure the resources that they would uh, need to even to live. And while they're there, this family that moves, they have two sons. Those sons each find a wife. Now these are Israelite men who find Moabite women and they marry them and therefore have, each of them have a wife. The trouble that they run into, and we're going to read a little bit about this in chapter 1, the trouble that they, they run into is this uh, fact that the, the, uh, the husband, uh, Naomi's husband, and then also both of her sons that have married these Moabite women pass away in an untimely death. And so while all three of these men die, they're, they're, we see the story transition from these six people, three couples, a, a, a mother and a father with their two sons that are each married to a place where it's simply just uh, a widow and her two widow daughter-in-laws. And she tells her daughter-in-laws, Naomi tells her daughter-in-laws that she can, she's going to leave, she's going to go back to her people in, uh, in, her, foreign, or in, her, in her land, leave this foreign land, and they can just stay there with their people in Moab They'll part ways, no hard feelings, and that'll be the end. But that's not exactly how the story goes. In fact, I'm going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the days, those were the days. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And I think that's kind of telling because a lot of times when we look at the good old days, we kind of forget about some of the things that were difficult. Here, in those days, things were difficult. There was famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem and Judah together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And the man's name was Ilamech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Mahal and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Imelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Melon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in when When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. 
with her two daughter-in-laws, excuse me, with her two daughter-in-laws, she left the place where she had been living and sent out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And I'll pause for a moment there. Naomi was basically saying, you don't have to fulfill the law of my people, which would be to come and to marry another husband or marry another brother, because I don't have any more brothers. Instead, you can stay with your people. You don't have to take care of me. You don't have to take care of your mother-in-law. Instead, I'm pardoning you of that. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud. And she said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for, for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again, and when Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where will you die? Where you will where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely. If even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirring because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? At that point, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. You know, as I read this passage this morning, I recognized that I didn't put the entire story on there, partially because I was going to highlight specifically the first portion of chapter one. But there's simply something important to note about the conclusion of this and the recognition of where these people were specifically. And so before I jump back into uh, the context of the note guide that you might have, I do want to mention this, Naomi's recognition or reflection upon what God had done and what he'd provided. You see, I think sometimes we get into life or sometimes we step into life and we recognize, we see maybe the glass is half, and I'm glad that these glasses are up here and I'm glad that the WD-40 got the adhesive off. Well done. But we see the glass as, this one's completely empty, but the glass says half 
empty or maybe even completely empty sometimes in life. And we look at it that way and we reflect upon it that way. Maybe we get mad at others. We get mad at God. We have this, this frustrated mentality and the reality of what we look at is always bad and negative and everything around us is terrible. And then it's interesting that the author goes on in verse 22 and says, so Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth. While she had walked through some difficult times, she had walked through the loss of her husband and two sons and this famine and having to move and come back, Naomi didn't realize, didn't reflect, didn't see the fact that there was still something left in the glass. She didn't look at and realize that Naomi didn't, I mean, excuse me, that Ruth didn't abandon her but stayed with her. I think part of the moral of this recognition of this chapter and this, this entire thing is that the, the story details how God, through the faithfulness of a relationship, through the faithfulness of what scraps Naomi might have considered this one thing that I have, God still brought forth the opportunity to bring forth his will and his way. We're going to continue with that as we go, and I want to pick up uh, basically as a, as a response to this three, and I want to highlight three specific observations the first observation is the rock. It's the foundation of this in-law relationship. And the first one is faith in God was the bonding force in Naomi and Ruth's relationship. Their faith in God. Now, let me just say, I recognize the fact that Ruth was a Moabite and she was not an Israelite. She didn't have this, this context of understanding the same way that the people that she was going to begin to live with would understand. But she did recognize the faith of Naomi and the recognition uh, of the person, the one who brought forth this relationship. And so, therefore, she... Uh, under this, this context of, of honoring Naomi at the same time, this context of recognizing something greater than herself allowed this to be the bonding force in her life. And perhaps the key question is, what does it look like then to make God the center of all of our relationships? What does it look like for you and I to make God the center of the relationships that we have with those that maybe are close in family, maybe they're a, a coworker or a student in our class or, or a roommate, maybe somebody that we don't see very often? How do we make God the center of our relationships? Well, one way of doing that is putting the needs of the other person first. And that is so, so easy and simple for me to say. And probably easy and simple for you to hear, but it is so difficult at times to put into action. In fact, sometimes it's difficult to, 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 uh, to even think about the fact that somebody else has needs, somebody else has something that, that they desire, something else that they might need that we can fill, that we can help out with. Have you ever thought about the purpose of friendship, the purpose of marriage? Anybody ever thought about that before? As I think about the relationships that God gives us and the gift that we have of being able to engage with relationships with other people, I realize that the purpose of relationships isn't simply to gain something, isn't even to give to the other person. The purpose of relationships is to help the other person find or to grow in their love for Christ. That's ultimately why we get married, is to help that other person know Christ in a greater way, to understand who God is and how he can be the, the, the one who brings forth and grants unconditional love, hope, grace, and joy. And so we engage in relationship, we do so with the recognition that when we put the other person's needs first, we put forth the need or the recognition that this is an opportunity for you to know Jesus because I am in your life. 
to know God, to know God's will, to know the goodness, the character, the nature of the God who serves and loves us. Further, it's the strength that bonds, and it's the strength that bonded Ruth and Naomi as well. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 reads like this. You often hear this at weddings, but it's so appropriate in a specific context of recognizing God as the center. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And it's interesting that, 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 that little turn there at the end that the author puts right there when you're talking about, well, what, we're talking about two people, all of a sudden, what's this three chords? The recognition there is that God is the center. God is the third chord. God is the one that when we engage in relationship and God is the center of each relationship, then we have this cord, this strand that is not easily broken. Get this foundational statement. Uh, just re- reflect upon this. All relationships are built on something. All relationships are built on something. Pardon the pun, it is foundational, they are all built, I get that, but all relationships are built on something. If you ever watch a a, a sequel in an action movie, sometimes they put together a sequel, and I'll tell you the sequels are are never good enough, so spoiler alert right there, but the, the, the sequel to an action movie, if there was any kind of romance in the first movie where there was two people and they came together typically as a result of the adversity that they went through, almost every time invariably, if you watch the sequel, those two characters are not together. Those two characters are, are not together, and so they'll have this kind of uh, this, this rough patch where they walk through, and sometimes they may come together again in the second one, but those two characters will not be together. And the reason for that, in most cases, is because of the reality that their relationship is built on something temporal. Their relationship is built on an action or an event or something that took place not on, and obviously it's a movie, so that kind of breaks down here, but in our lives we recognize not on Christ. When we build our lives on something temporal, when we build our lives on or our relationships on sand, they eventually will shake, they eventually will, will crumble, they eventually will fall apart. Divisions rarely take place as a result of the diversity that we fall into or that we have. Just because we come from different places or we, we have different nationalities doesn't mean that there's invariably going to be a divide in our relationship. Oftentimes, the reason that there's a divide in relationships is because the relationship is built on something other than Christ. And if I'm an amen person, I would amen that, but it's, it's up to you entirely. Naomi was an Israelite. Ruth was a Moabite. But they made it work. They made it work because of the reality that the two of them together made God the center, the foundation of the relationship. Verse 16, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. The implication is this, make Christ the center of all of your relationships. 
So what's the tie that binds, so to speak? What's the thing that brings that together? Observation number two is one that, that highlights this recognition of, of where commitment lies. You know, you can make God the center of your relationship, but if you don't act upon it, is it really, or has it really taken place? And observation number two is this, that Naomi and Ruth shared a strong mutual commitment. Naomi and Ruth shared a strong mutual commitment. They were both all in. They both decided to do this. It wasn't an uneven relationship where one of them said, okay, well, this is my God. You just kind of trail along or I'm going to go all in and I'm going to do all these things and, and maybe I'll, I can drag you along. Maybe you've seen the, the illustration before. I did this a lot as a youth pastor. If there was uh, two people that wanted to date and one of them was a believer and the other one was not, you'd have the one that was the believer stand on a chair, Right? And then you'd have the non-believers stand uh, on, on the floor and you say, okay, if you're, quote, unequally yoked, I want you to pull the other person up on the chair. And inevitably, that never works. The, the believer's not able to pull the other person up on the chair and then vice versa. Okay, now you, as the non-believer, pull, pull the believer down off of the chair. And, and in most cases, it's fairly simple. In one case, I had a guy just jerk the person up on there and I thought, all right, well, you're the, you're the one, right? But in most cases, it's, it's difficult when you're, when you're together in that type of a relationship to be able to bring someone into, into this place with Christ because of this uneven relationship, this uneven yoke. And so the recognition here is there has to be a mutual commitment, a mutual commitment to recognize that God is first and relationship is actually second. The key question is, what does this look like in a practical sense? The, the in-law is not the strength. The law portion is not the strength. It's not about doing. It's not about just mere action. But there's something much deeper on a heart level when it comes to this recognition of being part of the, the mutual commitment. Mutual commitment only is only, a, if it, mutual commitment is only a matter of law, then we're missing the point of what God did when he sent Jesus. In fact, Matthew 5.17 says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets, but I have, not, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And Christ's action as the one who came to save, the one who came to redeem, the one who came to this place to bring forth an opportunity for you and I to experience real and unconditional love, to experience eternal life, was not to come and say, okay, all those laws don't matter, but instead to bring them together to recognize it's far beyond just checking the boxes and doing the right thing, but it's about this heart understanding and this life that honors God and loves others. Jesus' whole life was a demonstration lived out of the law. But more importantly, to, to bring meaning to this and purpose to this, he was the one that said, okay, here's how the law is lived out. Not just the letter of the law, but the heart of the law. Ultimately pointing others, anyone who can, towards God. And the implication is this, to be committed in sacrifice for one another. Be committed in sacrifice for one another. Can, can you sacrifice like Jesus? Maybe I can make this a rhetorical question. Can you, have you sacrificed like Jesus? What does a sacrifice of Jesus look like? I, I mean, ultimately, there's some cores that we can look at here. Jesus gave everything. Jesus was willing to sacrifice in the midst of the lives of the people who literally turned on him. Who literally killed him. Jesus was one who said, I will sacrifice and give all that I have, all that I am, so that someone else, so that people that, that, that I don't even, that haven't been born yet, so that you and I sitting in this room or being in this room right now or joining online, you and I can experience eternal life in the presence of God the Father. 
Can we live a sacrificial life that says, hey, it's not about me. It's not about the things that I want. It's not about my time, but it's about what God is doing and how I can come along with him and sacrifice all that I am for him. And finally, this third observation, Ruth and Naomi facilitated a relationship that tried to do what was best for the other person. If you're to look at these three observations, there is some redundancy, but they build on one another. And in fact, within the context of these three observations, if they're, if they, if they, they're kind of like dominoes. If, if, they, if one falls, they're all going to fall. Or like a house of cards, if the, if, if the base falls, they're, they're not going to stand. There must be this continuation. There must be this building together. And the key question, perhaps, that, that goes along with this one is, what does it mean to do what is best for the other person? You know, sometimes, particularly in, in, in parenting, you find that sometimes what's best isn't always what's easiest. Sometimes what's best isn't always what is the most simple or what is the, what is the thing that you can just kind of check it off and move on. In short, the answer is stated above to point them towards the love of Jesus. And so what's best for someone else is to point them towards Jesus, whether it means in a difficult way, whether it means to show them, quote, what we know the phrase tough love, whether it means to step in and really be active in their life. And that can be different based upon different relationships and different contexts. But the reality is this, what we should do, what we should, what we should, what we should always embrace and engage is to bring forth an opportunity for others to know and grow in Jesus. Practically, there's so much more that one can do specifically when engaging with other people. And, and certainly you and I know, and Pastor Seth said this uh, a couple of weeks ago, that, that relationships are the same. Relationships would be easier if it weren't for the people, right? Be real easy. What I realize from time to time, specifically in relationships, is sometimes I'll say something and the other person will hear something different. And that might be because I didn't say it how I meant to, or that I'm holding on to different things in my mind that didn't come out of my mouth, or maybe even my body language said something else. But when we receive information from others, we do the same thing, right? We kind of just fill in the blanks on the things that we assume about that other person. And when I first came into this concept, I couldn't believe the fact that we think about the reality that sometimes we write a story that somebody else is thinking, doing, or saying that they're not doing at all. We presume a, a character or a nature or something on that other person. We think, wow, I can't believe how rough or how mean or what they're doing. They're so bad. Their intentions are so wrong. When the reality is simply that we just are not communicating well. We're not engaging well. We're not communicating at all. What else does this look like? Engaging with other people practically? It means listening well. It means listening well. I, I, I was, um, th this past week, I was blessed to be able to, to serve as the officiant of, uh, of a funeral service. And one of the things that I heard time and time again from the family, I love to engage with the family beforehand to be able to hear about uh, the, the person who's passed away and hear about their life and their values. And one thing I heard from almost every person to a T was that he was such a great listener. And I thought to myself, when you get to the end of life, when we get to the end of life, all the things that we attempt to try to, quote, do kind of pale in comparison to all the things that we were. And the things that we are, the being that we are, is what truly gets talked about, truly matters versus the things that we earn, the things that we gain, the things that we do, the empire that we make. The reality of this man being a, a good listener is a rare thing in our day. 
Because everybody's got an, a, 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 something to say, right? Everybody's got an answer. Everybody's got something they want to fill in the blanks with. But being a good listener is, is, is very real. And the last principle I just want to mention under this, what does it mean to do the best for others, is to fight for the relationship, not against the other person. And I talked about this briefly when we talked about Hosea and Gomer, but the reality is this. Oftentimes, it's good to step back in, this, in the context before or inside of, uh, of any kind of conflict that you're having and say, hey, do I truly understand what the other person is saying, what their side is? Do I truly want to win this and be right? Because usually if you're right at the end, you're wrong, right? That's the bad part about it. Or do I really just want us to grow in our relationship together? Philippians 2, 3, and 4 reads, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Let me illustrate this maybe in, a, in more of a laughable way. It might make you feel, it might, maybe it'll, it'll lighten the tension a little bit. Not too long ago, my son came home, my youngest son from school, and he said, hey, uh, there's a parade going on in Athens this weekend, and I want to go to it. And uh, we're, we're parade people, I guess. And so I thought, all right, we, we can go to this parade. That's no big deal. And, and he kind of talked uh, my wife and I into it. We decided we would just run up there. And the other two kids were like, yeah, we could take it or leave it. Not a big deal. And I thought, well, that's weird because they're going to be giving out lots of candy. And, uh, and so I, I said, all right, let's, let's, let's go. And so the three of us went, my wife and I and, and our youngest son, we went to the parade. And it was the, the OU homecoming parade a couple of weeks ago. And we went uh, down uh, at the end of Union Street, right where the parade started. And as we got there, one of the things that I know, and I mean, just, just a, a, a pro tip for going to parades, if you go at the beginning, they give out way too much candy because they don't realize that they're going to run out of it. So pro tip, right? Or for those of you who are like, I don't want my kids to have candy, go to the end of the parade. Actually, go somewhere in the middle. So the end, it'll dump everything too. All right, what was I saying? Let's get back to this. So in any event, we went to the parade. And I thought, okay, we'll get a little bit of candy. This is going to kind of be neat. We'll watch the bands come through and, and the clubs came through. And, you know, it was, it was, it was a neat uh, experience to go and, to, and it was a good day to be out. And the, the parade went on and it seemed like uh, maybe because of uh, my son's smile or maybe because of, you know, they, they just saw him and thought, oh, he's, you know, he's so cute. I, I don't know. I'm partial on both. He has a great smile and he's cute. He looks like his mom. But he got lots of candy. In fact, he filled up the bucket that he brought and the bag that someone else gave him, and he had tons and tons of candy. And, it, and, in it, and when we get home, in a measure to protect my son, I decided, okay, we're going to have to sort some of this candy out, and there's going to be some stuff here that you probably shouldn't have. Right? It's too sugary. That's what I thought of. I'm sorry. In any event, we went through the candy and he sorted it all out and he's got it all in the places where he wants it to be. And as the next few days went on, I, I have a little bit of a sweet tooth and I, I decided, you know what, I, I would like some candy. And so here and there, I would say to him, hey, you know what, you want a piece of candy? <laughs> what kid says no, right? Although he did a couple times. I thought, well, that backfired. <laughs> you want a piece of candy? Let's go get one. And so we'd go, and he had it all in this little safe. Let's, let's go, and he would get his candy, and he'd pick one out. He let me pick one out, and each time I would get a piece of candy. 
And it's silly, right? It it is a silly thing, and I I understand that as well. But I think sometimes in life, we find ourselves in a place where we kind of have these ulterior motives. Hey, this is good for you, but it's also good for me. You know, this situation that we're stepping into is something that I want you to, you know, to have this experience, but it's also something where it's an experience for me. And there's this reflection upon the fact that the motives that we have, the motives that we have in life, while they may have this kind of kickback moment, that the motives that we have in life should always be directed towards helping the other person know Jesus. And so when you ask, what does it mean to put the other person first? It means that that person's needs are primary, are the focus, not necessarily the things that they want, but the needs that they have and ours are not. And the implication there is simple. Put others first. May our motives, may our words, may our actions always be directed towards putting others first. And that putting others first means that they experience the love and relationship with Jesus. You know, these two women, Ruth and Naomi, had every reason to divide, every reason to go their own ways, every reason to separate. But the bottom line is simply this. The presence of the Holy Spirit in any relationship overcomes differences that Satan might use to create division and unity. He'll use anything. He's crafty and he will do whatever he can to attempt to try to divide or to tear you down, whether it be a misunderstanding or or a void of somebody smiling or waving or perhaps somebody's motive was wrong. And sometimes it's intentional, but Satan will use anything to attempt to drive a wedge. And these two women had any reason to be divided. But Ruth's response is this, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Please don't urge me to leave. For we will share this God together. What's the big picture takeaway from this book? Certainly Ruth ends, the book itself ends with a genealogy. And that genealogy is one that we read several weeks ago that results in the Messiah. And so it is that, and so it becomes that as she gets together with Boaz, which is the redeemer of this family that's actually related to Naomi, the way that this works is, I mean, you, you can't make this stuff up, right? She, he, she comes back and marries Boaz, and, and together they become part of this lineage, this genealogy, and God brings full circle what Naomi saw as destitute and, and discouragement and darkness as a place where she can once again see God's hand moving through the, the, the contribution she had in the coming of the Messiah. Ruth invites us to reflect upon how God might be involved in the seemingly mundane details in our lives, the small things, the dark times. And Ruth also reveals how God brings about his redemptive plan through the obedience, the action, the unity of his people. I want to end with just this quick illustration. I'm going to read this. It's extremely moving, one that I've reflected upon before, and I think I've even shared from this uh, setting as well. Perhaps you've heard the name Nate Saint. Nate Saint was a Christian missionary pilot in the 1950s. 
He was part of a team that was attempting to evangelize a remote tribe in the jungle of Ecuador. He was killed with four others as they tried to evangelize the, the Wadadi people in Ecuador. You may have heard of Jim Elliott. He was a member of that team. But what you may not have heard is this, that Rachel, Saint's sister, continued efforts with this same tribe that slain her family. The people then resulting in many of them becoming Christians as she continued to minister to them, including those who literally were the ones who killed her relative, Nate Saint. Steve Saint, Nate's oldest son, got to know this tribe well and eventually baptized, was baptized by a man named Minkati, who was later admitted to be the one who threw the final spear that killed his father. He was converted through Rachel, Nate's sister, the man who killed his father, the man who killed Rachel's brother. And I can't help but think about the reality that in life there are many things that could cause us to be divided. But what Satan uses for destruction, what Satan uses to tear us down, to divide us, God can use for good through his expression of love. Steve Saint tells us about the redemptive power of the gospel, making Christ the center of your relationship. About the generational rippling effect of embracing the unity that God puts in our life, no matter what the differences might be. Certainly, I don't know the situations you're walking through or the relationships you have, whether they're good or they're broken or something in between. But what I do know is that Scripture calls us and, and, and uh, encourages us and God encourages us to step forward with a position and a posture that puts others first and allows Christ to be the center of all that we do and all that we say and every relationship we have. Thank you again for spending time with us today. Thank you especially to those of you who give to CCWC. It is through your faithfulness that makes this ministry possible. Also, if you have any questions about today's teaching or if you want to learn more about CCWC, feel free to contact our office, check the web, or follow us on our social media platforms. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we do encourage you to take a moment to subscribe and share it with friends. Let this be a blessing to someone else that you love in your life. You're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning for worship, or until then, we'll catch you on the next one. God bless.